Hello, I'm Katie Piper, and welcome to my podcast, Katie Piper's Extraordinary People. Each episode, I'll meet an amazing person with an incredible story who faced adversity and came through the other side to inspire others. Today, I'm joined by a body confidence coach, award-winning body positive activist and author. It is Michelle Ellman. Now, I was going to start by saying I'm joined by an old friend today, but I'm not because this is like the second time I've met her and probably the first time I've properly met her. But that is what uh, social media does for you. Um, And not just social media, but when you relate to somebody that you've never met and you read up on them and they help you with your own thought process, it does become um, like an old friend. So that is probably an answer to why she is so successful and also has a book out, because I guess I'm not the only person that feels like her old friend. Uh, Michelle, welcome. Thank you. I mean, and that's such an honour because that's essentially what you were to me. Oh, I actually really? remember it. It was like in sixth form. And at the, that point, I was actually grappling with talking about my scars for the first time. And I just right. saw you on TV. I didn't even know your name. And I literally just saw you on TV and I was like, she could be on TV. I could have a conversation with my friends about my scars. That's so it was cool. just, it's so it's such an honour to no, that's like mutual. <laughs> Maybe I should actually let you introduce yourself and, and tell people who haven't heard of you who are listening um, who you are and what you stand for. So I've had 15 surgeries from a brain tumour, a punctured intestine, an obstructed bowel, a cyst in my brain and a condition called hydrocephalus. And I had those 15 surgeries before the age of 20. They started when I was one years old. Um, and what, all Can through... I ask, what was it something you were born with? Was it genetic? Or... It's a really... It's... I hate saying it's just bad luck, but it is just bad luck. And so much of it was unconnected to each other that it Mm -hmm. was just one thing after another with me. Um, There was some conversation around the fact that my mum didn't know she was pregnant until a lot later. Um, But essentially it was bad luck. Um, And so it started with a cyst in my brain. And then it was... How old were you then when it started? One years old. And then... it's a lifetime. Yeah, essentially. I don't remember a time without me having scars, without me being in hospital. Um, And actually my first memory is in hospital of me trying to paint with my left hand because my right hand had um, an IV drip in it. And I was trying to paint a card for my year one teacher. So to say like, hospital was my norm Mm -hmm. is pretty much the best way to sum it up Um, and all through my childhood I was just really insecure about my scars and it was only when I was 21 that I had worked really hard on my confidence from the age of 15 and it pretty much started with me just accepting my scars were ugly but that I couldn't do anything about it Um, and actually removing the potential of plastic surgery because I always had that as a temporary (laughs) thing in the back of my head so um, plastic surgery to try and remove the scars, to conform? Yeah. Or... And it, like I didn't even look into it that much. It was just more so um, the idea started when I was 10 years old and I had worn a bikini for the first time. Right. My friends saw my scars and it was met with like looks of pity, shock and horror. And then I started getting really obsessed with trying um, scar reduction creams, not realising <laughs> it wouldn't work on yeah. surgery scars. And like, that's hard when you're young because your expectation is raised. And I think that's the funny thing because it's such a, it's almost a funny story that I was trying to use scar reduction creams on mm-hmm. surgery scars. But that's the combination of childlike mind not understanding what's going on mm-hmm. and then also dealing with a very adult situation. Yeah. So I had a conversation with my dad at the time and he said, 
look, well, if we can talk about it when you're 15, but you're way too young to get plastic surgery, because that's what I started. I had Googled it and I was like, I want to get it done. Yeah, because it um, felt like a solution and relief. And- yeah, and it was also, I just never wanted to be looked at in that way again. Yeah. And it was... So until that point, I was like, the solution is never talk about it, hide it, don't show my scars to anyone. Where and are they on your body then? To- so across my stomach, mm-hmm. half my head is bald. Right. Um, and I have a few on my chest. So mm-hmm. apart from like the ones on my chest, you can't really see it unless I'm um, undressed. And that's when... When I was like 15, I started thinking about boys and then I was like, Mm -hmm. okay, this isn't a permanent solution. Yeah. I'm going to have to start talking about it. Controversial Um, question then, right? Because this is like, so if I was talking like from my charity hat on and trying to be neutral, I would say both are as difficult. But living with scars on your face and living with scars on your body, right? For me, as someone on my face, I think it's sometimes harder when they're hidden. Because for me, it was very hard in the beginning and I had no choice to hide them. I would have loved to have been able to hide them, but I couldn't. So I had to put myself out there really early on yeah. and everyone knew who knew me, I had them. Whereas I feel if they'd have been hidden, I wouldn't have dealt with it. I would have hidden them for a long time. Yeah. And if I went to have an intimate relationship, I think I would have like just collapsed in terms of recovery and it would have all gone wrong. Well, that's essentially what happened with me. And I don't know which is harder, but I know that... Each thing comes with different struggles. And I actually, it was the moment I was interviewing someone who had scars on her face. Mm. And I said to her, oh, well, I'm lucky because I get to pick and choose when I have the conversation. And she said, no, I'm lucky because I had my confidence in place before it happened. You had it when you were one years old. And it's why it's like, there's no point to really compare it. But it does bring up a unique conversation when you can hide it for so long. Because I hid it until I was 18 years old. and (sighs) That's tough. Especially when I went into hospital first year of primary school and first year of secondary school. So I never even had to have a conversation about it because it was almost like I would go into hospital and then all the rumours would go around the school. Mm-hmm. And by the time I came back, everyone knew. So I didn't have to have the conversation. Um, and so how it ended up happening, I actually talk about this in my book. It's the first time I ever talked talked about it but how it came out at university was actually a game a drunk game of truth or dare and I was drunk enough to forget about my scars oh wow that and was some good drink what were you drinking <laughs> I was, need some it was freshers week right okay <laughs> um, and a guy had asked me as a dare to take off my top for a round and like mm-hmm. I was in my bra yeah but I completely forgot about my scars and I just took my top off and um that's the first moment I had to explain to my brand new uni friends that I had scars on my stomach. And as soon as I did it, he was like, oh my God, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. Like, you can put it back on. Right, um, okay. And I was in a room of 20 people, all of these people, my brand new friends. And it was this thing that I had obsessed about from 15 to 18. How do I, like, I don't want to, I even told my parents I didn't want to go to university because I just didn't want to have the conversation. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly it was happening on the fourth day of university, <laughs> surrounded by all these new friends. And it just turned into a really normal relaxed conversation and there were some medics in the room like oh, medical students okay and so it was the first time I was asked about medical details around it so informative questions yeah. not voyeuristic and it wasn't like it wasn't done in a like inspirational way it was mm-hmm. just in a factual way and 
it just became normal. And the best part about it was five minutes later, the room went back to doing what it was like playing a drinking game. And it was so normal. And it was that friendship group that allowed me to have the conversations. And that whole first year of university was me like talking about memories from 10 years ago because it was the first time I was almost allowed to talk about it. This is why you talk so much (laughs) because you're making up for all that time. It must have literally been like such a relief to be... It was like pouring out of me. And every time anyone would mention anything, whether it be like dogs I'd be like oh they were hospital like there were dogs in hospital and yeah. they're, that they're the reason I'm able to walk today and I genu- I say that all the time like the hospital dogs are the reason I got out of bed um but any inane conversation mm. was t- like was brought back to hospital just because it was like the first time I was allowed permission to share, to share yeah. it yeah do you think then um that's interesting that your circle allowed you to be you do you think confidence is very much then about your circle I think in school it was a lot about me trying to fit in and so university was the first friendship group where I didn't have to try to fit in because I automatically belonged Um, and Brene Brown talks about that where she was like in order for you to belong you actually have to stop trying to fit in yeah Um, that's so true and it was some really unique friendship group where like we none of us would have been friends in school there were some Mm -hmm. like really cool kids some really nerdy kids but we all just accepted each other for how we were and I Mm -hmm. understand that's not the majority of people's uni experience but to this day I credit that uni experience as the reason why I'm so confident and so accepting of myself because Mm -hmm. I was so accepted in that friendship group. And then what did you go on to do after uni? Where did you go to uni? So I went to uni in Bristol. I did a degree in psychology. I graduated from there but in the last year of psychology uh, my psychology degree I got PTSD Right. And then the second year I went into hospitals. So, so what, what do you know what triggered the PTSD? I think it was actually the second year going into hospital and then I raced back to university. I didn't allow myself enough recovery time. Mm-hmm. And then I think it was me mentally feeling safe for the first time that right. I was in the right friendship group. I was in the right space in my life that I was like, my brain almost went, okay, now's the time to deal with it because yeah. you never felt, I never felt safe in school. Um, and for the first time I felt safe, especially after I came back from university because all my friends like looked after me. I was, mm-hmm. I would be in a club holding my like stitches <laughs> and they would like sit me in the corner of the room and someone would always be like watching over me. Yeah. And um, it was a lecture that I was I was sitting in a lecture about how physical health me- affects mental health. Mm-hmm. Um, and they said the words that when you're a psychologist and you walk into the room, most clients will respond be- saying, why me? And it was that first <clears throat> thing that just went like, I said that so many times in hospital. Mm-hmm. And it just like, you, it felt like someone had like punched me in the heart. Um, and then they said... And the other, the biggest obstacle you will face is I'm not crazy. And that's another thing that I said when a, the first psychologist walked into my room. Right. And it was kind of like I saw this Rolodex of memories, like these pictures in my head that I hadn't thought about in over a decade. So do you think it's emotions and, and scenarios you hadn't processed and you'd repressed them? And A hundred percent, because I never got, I never felt angry around them. I never felt sad around them. And to mm-hmm. have... Um, all of those emotions in one go and not being able to disentangle any of them, Mm -hmm. I just started crying and I cried for nearly three months. Did you cry in that lecture there and then? Yeah, and I, the the lecturer saw my eye, but I was um, (laughs) caught in a bench so I couldn't get out. Oh my goodness, Um, that's quite distressing as well. Especially when trauma is not being able to escape. Mm -hmm. And so I literally couldn't escape in Mm -hmm. that um, lecture hall. 
so that's kind of what started it. And then I went into therapy, but therapy, talking therapy wasn't working for me mm-hmm. when it came to PTSD. And that's when... I was just about to graduate. It was like, I've always wanted to be a psychologist. I'd wanted to be a psychologist since I was 11 years old. And because was, of your own experience? Or, yeah, yeah. And a volunteer I'd met in hospital who, oh, right. um, when I was 11, who had described her job. And I was like, there was a sentence everyone said to me when I was in hospital, which was, everything happens for a reason. And so my child, like mine, was like, I need to find a reason. Okay. And I latched on to... Do you like that saying or do you... I hate it. You hate it. Tell me why you hate it. Do you like it? Um, I just think it's a load of bollocks. Like it sounds nice for like a a quote, a positive quote, but you know we're the we're in the driving seat of our own lives. Mm -hmm. So it's not that things just happen for a reason, or wouldn't that turn out nice? Like we navigate that. You know, but also you find the reason, and the reason is always in hindsight. Whereas at the time, you're telling an eleven-year-old everything happens for a reason, Mm. and my first. Uh, thing that went into my head was I was a bad person that's exactly. why it happened that's the danger of it that it's yeah. punishment that you did something wrong that God hates you or in a past life or it's guilty I remember actually thinking like was the reason I was mean to my brother or that <laughs> I hadn't drank enough milk or like mm-hmm. eaten enough spinach like I I thought I was the reason and that's why I just don't think you should ever say that to someone because mm-hmm. especially someone who's so young and doesn't really understand the context of that saying yeah um, and so my reason was that I was going to save everyone and help everyone and become a psychologist. Right. And then, that, and that's a big thing to carry on your shoulders, isn't it? To be everybody's yeah. kind of saviour and, you know, and, and to go and study and do that at such a young age and, and feel like that's my purpose because I was born sick. Well, it's survivor's guilt. So, like, Mm -hmm. I was in a hospital... The period when I was in hospital when I was 11 was probably the longest period. It was three months in intensive care ward. And the intensive care ward is the most extreme. And because it's kids, it's Mm -hmm. even more dangerous. Um... So I was watching people die on a daily basis. And even if I wasn't watching it, I could hear the sounds. Yeah. Um, and you could hear the parents wailing in the background. And every time anyone died, you'd be like, but why am I surviving? So you had this, like, really... Com- big like confusion of like why me like uh-huh. this can't happen to me and then also being like you should be grateful yeah. like you made it out there are so many other people who didn't and you carry this guilt and not being able to understand it because of your age mm-hmm. and you kind of want to like make your life count for all the lives that were lost mm-hmm. which no human can ever do and you carry all that on your shoulders yeah. <laughs> and they're tiny young shoulders with no life experience exactly and no one should have to earn their right to life but it becomes that mentality of like Mm -hmm. I have to earn the fact that I survived and no one else did and psychology and therapy was the way I was going to do that except it didn't really happen because therapy didn't talking therapy didn't work for me Mm -hmm. were your parents supportive were they a big part of your journey I think the problem was I never spoke to them so they didn't know how much was going on in my head and from the outside I'm very good at smiling and like pretending I'm okay and so they thought I was okay until actually until my book came out uh, <laughs> and they well, were, that's often the case though yeah. yeah and I would get caught I literally got a call every day from my mum being like you never told me about that why didn't you tell me about that I'm gonna call the school that's not okay <laughs> and I was like mum I've been out of school for like six years I you think can't. they've lost those records now mum <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> they've gone paperless calm down exactly <laughs> and I'm like you can't do anything now I'm really sorry I should have told you at the time but yeah you, for you to talk to your parents, you need to be able to say the words out loud. And I didn't want to say the words out loud. No. Um, and so I was left in the situation of like, OK, well, talking therapy didn't work for me. Mm-hmm. And so I can't be a therapist. And I was still crying every day. Um, and I found uh, a, a type of technique called havening. 
And that's what What's led it called? Havening. Havening. I've never heard of that. And it's specific for trauma. Right. And I walked in, it was an hour and 10 minute session. And I walked out and I stopped crying. Like all my PTSD symptoms from that day have gone. What do they do? Tell me. It's a type of hypnotherapy. And um, it basically is the belief that trauma happens when you get trapped and you don't feel safe. And what happens in talking therapy is you actually strengthen the neurology behind it. Yeah. Because you're replaying the memories. Mm-hmm. And so... Because your unconscious doesn't know the difference between real and imagined. So if I talked about biting into a lemon, Mm. your body would automatically react to that. That's what's happening in talking therapy is your brain's reacting to as if the trauma was happening here right now as you're imagining it in your brain. Reliving. Yeah. And so what this does is interrupt the neurological patterns by doing like ridiculous things like singing happy birthday and moving your eyes from left to right, which creates (laughs) delta waves. I'm not sure behind the science of it. Mm -hmm. But... It interrupts the patterns. So when your brain goes uh, through that neurological loop, it's blocked from doing that. Right, OK. Um, it makes sense when you explain it. Yeah. yeah, and so that's why I was like, whatever this is, whatever you're trained in, I want to get trained in. And that's how I became a life coach. And so for the next year, I trained as a life coach um, and I got five board accredited. Wow. And then... I love stuff. this. Another way you just dropped that in like that as well. <laughs> I started a business and I was like, I'm not really sure because that's the only way you could be a life coach back then. No one yeah. was hiring I mean, life we're coaches. talking like... Nineties millennial kind of like there was no internet internet in terms of like it was... well a bit older so oh. it was like how old are you there I thought you were twenty six yeah I was gonna say so I thought it, you were young yeah I'm I'm young and I was a young life coach as yeah. well um, but I think it was it was this opening of my mind to there are other ways to help people yeah. and there are other modes of therapy that aren't widely recognised and probably a lot of scientists would be like oh well there's this floor and that floor. But ultimately, as a person who went through it, I don't care why it worked. I care that it did work. Yeah, it's the outcome that you yeah. had. Yeah, and the, and also anyone that's had PTSD will know to be free of PTSD is a phenomenal feeling because yeah. it actually just suffocates your entire existence. You know, you don't... And so much of the physical symptoms block you from actually processing the emotional. So the fact I was crying all day every day meant I actually couldn't sit with any of the emotions because my eyes physically hurting from crying that long was the thing I was dealing with, all the hallucinations, all the flashbacks. And I was like, I just want to be able to sit with the anger or sit with the sadness without Mm. having all the like almost more most extreme of the symptoms that were making it harder to do that. And so even though it got rid of all my symptoms in terms of the practical like hallucinations, flashbacks and the crying. But I still had a lot to sort through after that. And I did do that via talking therapy, but I needed to like get past all of the physical stuff that was... So can you truly ever be free of PTSD completely? I believe I'm fully recovered and I use that word and I believe it's really important and empowering in order to give people that option. And I think the reason why I had such a um, mind block when it came to talking therapy was the first thing that psychologist said is you have PTSD you're going to have this for the rest of the, your life and there is no cure that seems a bit like doomsday doesn't it especially when that's why the I first... have treatment you know <laughs> yeah and it's the first well she said um, I'm going to help you to manage it but you can't get rid of it right um, and to be honest as a very stubborn person I just went Nope, I was happy a month ago. That I'm probably gonna go. motivated you. <laughs> yeah. Well, I wonder, do you have any anxiety? So, like, for me, I was diagnosed with PTSD and I did have treatment and it was successful and I was free for a long, long time. And then something happened in my private life um, recently, end of last year, that actually re-traumatised me. 
and I'm now having treatment again. Yeah. So in a way, it kind of made me quite depressed of, oh, it's back. Is this my life now? For I'll have a good few years, then yeah. something will happen. And, you know, I, I don't have the answer at the moment. So I ref- it's funny because I feel like I'm in the middle of that right now. Right, okay. um, I actually spent the morning crying, but it's fine. <laughs> well, it wasn't about coming here. <laughs> no, was it? it was about like uh, something reopened in me like yeah. last week. And it's fine. And But I see it as two separate things. So I see it as I had PTSD. I recovered from it. <clears> and some, I will always have those wounds inside of me. Yeah. And they will sometimes be triggered. But that doesn't necessarily mean I go back to the hallucination or the flashbacks. But I will have a deeper wounding because I've had complex PTSD in the past. And so what's most empowering for me is I believe it as a separate event. So Mm -hmm. that's in my past. I've recovered from that. Here's a new thing that has been brought up for me to heal. And it's it hurts and I have to feel it. But I have the skills to feel it now because I've been in therapy for five years. Mm -hmm. And so it doesn't scare me in the same way that it used to. I think a lot of when I was first diagnosed with PTSD is I was worried I was going to lose me. And Mm -hmm. now I realise there is no me. Like me is not a stagnant thing. that, And I wouldn't want to go back to the previous me because every wound that opens up when it heals, I do become a stronger version of myself. And so I see them as separate events. So if my wound ever opened up again, which it has last week, if I recover, if I like go through that and go through the pain of it, um, it would be a separate thing to what happened three years ago, five years ago. Because you're able to do that now because you've got yeah. those, you've got that experience, those coping skills. and yeah. yeah, and it's why I preach about therapy all the time because I do believe it's more maintenance than yeah. anything else. And I still go to a therapist even if my life is amazing and nothing is wrong because it means I have the skills in a time like this where yeah. I'm like... I can I can still live my life, and that's something I never thought I'd be able to do. So you do a lot of positive work. I mean, for me, where I mainly follow you is Instagram. And the one, uh, like, the way I noticed you in the first place was it was a bikini picture, and it was showing all your scars, and I think it was no makeup as well. Yeah. And it was just like, it was you. There was no editing. It didn't look fuzzy or wonky or anything like that. <laughs> And I remember thinking, like, when Instagram first happened, it was very much in the beginning all about, like, no pores on people's skin, like, fuzzy complexions, dog ears, and, like, all kinds of, like, just edited, filtered stuff. And I remember thinking, like, God, I'm kind of the only one on here who's, like, crepey skin, scarred, wrinkly, disfigured. And slowly I I actually realised, no, I'm not. That's not true. I'm just not following the right accounts. And I saw you and I was like, wicked. She's done that. And actually, majority of your comments and followers are really positive. Yeah. She's not getting like trolled. Maybe you do get some trolling. I don't Honestly, know. Honestly, it's next but, to nothing, which yeah. is just, I, it's also the size. Like I'm only at 100, I don't say that in a negative way, but at 150,000, it is still wholly positive. Yeah. If I got to a million, it might ha- bring in more negativity, but... It is amazing how positive it manages to be. The reason why I started posting these like makeup free and like honest bikini pictures, actually that's how the account started was I posted one bikini picture the first time I was ever wearing a bikini at 21 years old. And it was because I saw this body positive conversation growing and it was so frustrating that a movement all about everybody is beautiful didn't include my body and didn't include anyone with scars um so I had launched this campaign scar not scared which now is my username but at the time wasn't um and that's what 
it was this first bikini picture and it's I kind of joke about it because I'm like you never know how different your body is until you go viral for a bikini picture yeah, that's so true yeah because <laughs> no one else would go You're viral kind of for naive simple... and innocent yeah. yeah and it was just the caption saying like a belief that I had which was people with scars can't wear bikinis mm-hmm. um, referring back to that time when I was 10 years old and I wore it for the first time um, and it was the fact that I'd been confident in my body for maybe three years but the bikini was still the thing that and the reason I didn't wear a bikini was I used to say, I don't want to make other people uncomfortable. And it was the first I time... I totally understand. I've had these feelings. Yeah. Myself. yeah. But it's the first time I was like, why are their feelings more important than mine? Mm-hmm. What if I just want to feel water on my stomach while I'm swimming? Like, yeah. that is important in itself. That's a life. That's your life. Yeah. It's your experiences. Exactly. And it's funny because the first time I wore a bikini... Not that many people stared. And I remember getting in the pool being really confused and one of my friends was in the pool and I was like, I'm just a bit shocked that like it's not the same reaction I remembered. And, mm-hmm. and he turned to me and went, Michelle, you're not seven years old anymore. Like when you were seven years old, can you imagine seeing a seven-year-old with the same scars yeah. on the stomach? You would look at a seven-year-old with mm-hmm. pity. Um, whereas you're older now, so people don't pity No one cares. You. Yes. <laughs> Basically. Pretty much yeah. no one yeah. cares. It was so liberating. Yeah. I was like, no one cares. And yeah. so I say a lot on my page, like, let them stare. And also I have fun with it because it's really fun to stare back. Yeah. Um, or sometimes <laughs> I just look down at my stomach as if I've not seen them before. Like you're shocked too. Yeah. What happened there? Oh, my yeah. God. I remember exactly. that happened to me. I went into a shop. It was like a newsagent's in South London. And I was rushing, probably buying, I think, again, breathments for fish breath. Um, I started this interview with salmon breath, to put that in context. Um, and I ran in and I said, just this please and I had cash to pay I wanted to get in get out and the woman went oh, what's happened to your face and I was like oh, I don't know is there blood on it <laughs> and she was like uh, no 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 and then just like quickly processed the payment because I was genuinely thinking like, oh yeah. my god if I cut my head open or something because yeah. I was at that time living a life where I accepted I was burnt and I'd forgotten I was burnt mm. until she had that interaction with me I remember for me when I first started dating before I got married and um, my confidence was really good because I was just like, well, some will like me, some won't. I like yeah. me. It's OK. And then I was almost like too confident where I'd date guys. And then like I thought it had all been OK. And then it was an issue of how I looked or if I had a surgery. And then I was like, what's the problem? What's wrong? And I kind of forget that actually there's other girls out there who don't have all this. And, yeah. that, and that's the kind of comparison. And it was weird. Like. I don't know. I suppose for me, maybe I was almost too confident. I remember going yeah. on a date with one guy. It was like two dates in. And he was like, oh, you know, like you're, um, you've got such a great body. Like if you could do something about your face, like it, it would change it for oh you. My gosh. And I was like, oh. See, I get the opposite. I, you've got a great face. Yeah. <laughs> if only you could change your body. But, but then this guy proceeded to give me advice on Botox. Oh Bear, my bearing God. in mind, I think this guy was like, I don't, he worked in like an office in like Putney's. So I don't know how much yeah. Botox he was giving out in Putney. But, and I was just like, oh no, it's not really like that. I can't have Botox to change my face. It won't change anything. I don't really need Botox, but yeah. thanks anyway. And it was like this kind of naivety of like, um, everyone would just like me because I'm a nice, fun person. Yeah. <laughs> Dealing with dating, especially because that's the reason I started talking about my scars yeah. around it was so difficult especially around um, my when I went into hospital second year of university and I was dating a guy at the time and it, it reminded me because of what you said around hospitals yeah. they might be okay with the scars but then once you go into hospital mm-hmm. suddenly they disappear people drop off yeah, yeah. and yeah. it changed that um, experience with that guy 
really changed my mind around it was I was like, my biggest insecurity was around appearance around scars. But if they can't deal with scars, how the hell are they going to deal with it when I'm actually in hospital and uh-huh. I need you by my bedside? Yeah. Um, and so I kind of, one of my guy friends said to me, he was, he was like, your scars are a filtering system for all the assholes in the world. It's so true, yeah. honestly. Yeah. And that's the thing of a facial scar is it's straight, you won't even get like the first yeah. n- number exchange. You, no. know, you won't, you won't even... get the superficial people. Uh, you no. won't get the people who like will... Basically, what he said was, they all have to find out the hard way and yeah, you yeah. find out really early on. Yeah, it's true. It's a good idiot filter. Yeah. I mean, on Instagram, you do a lot of, um, like you said, it's not all about your scars. There's lots of different things that you cover and you talk about. And I wanted to talk to you about this body positivity movement because yeah. in in the first instance, I remember thinking, this is great. And then it gets like hijacked by people and you're like... Don't jump on that. You're on everything else. Like, don't ruin this. And then it's also this thing of you should love yourself. You should have body positivity. Hold on. Lots of people are just aiming for neutral feelings. I I definitely don't love my face every day of my life. And that's naturally not even my goal. You know, there's times when I hate my face and and I don't think that's a failure. I think there's a lot of confusion around body positivity and body confidence. So even if, so body positivity is believing that all bodies are deserving of respect. Mm -hmm. Body confidence is being confident in your own body. So even if you're not confident in your appearance today, doesn't mean you're not body positive. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're two separate things. You can be body confident without being body positive. You can be body positive without being body confident. Um, and I think the thing we need to remember is that it's okay to be human. You're allowed to feel all of those emotions. And pretending they don't exist doesn't help anyone. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the thing that frustrates me with the love yourself conversation is there are too many people telling you to love yourself and not enough people telling you how mm-hmm. um, and actually giving you tools. And yeah. I hope my page is a place where I actually give practical advice around how to do that. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, yours is, yours is actually a resource and it's consistent in your messaging because sometimes you can see people giving out advice but not actually practising it or yeah. taking it on board or not being consistent in their in their own kind of feelings and their own output. I always say your body is your most permanent excuse. Because, <laughs> That's so true. Oh my God, I've yeah. got to plagiarise this. Because yeah. <laughs> you can't get rid of it. And so like yeah. if you say, oh, well, I can't go for that job interview until I lose 10 pounds. Here's a six months excuse you, you can now use because yeah. you're like, oh, it's my body's fault. And I'm like, or were you just scared for that job interview? And you're and hiding you, behind yeah. that. Yeah, that's so true. Exactly. Because we all do that. We do like, I'll live my dream life after I've lost the 10 pounds. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, but why don't you actually face the fear around living your dream life now? Mm-hmm. But using that as an excuse is literally just wasting time. And I'm sure you have this as well, like going through all of our medical experiences. Yeah. yeah. You have this like emotional part of you which realizes how short life is. Yeah, because you faced your mortality at such a young yeah. age. Like, you, you know, when we, were at school well it's even different for you because you were never free of it at school but when I was at school I used to draw my future of like a dog a cat a son a house a white fence I'll have a baby a boy and a girl and I'll get married (laughs) and then you know for me it was my 20s where I was like shit no it could be over everything you know and for me like I actually died when I was 11 so like my flat my heart flatlined and I had the feeling of floating up above my body and when I came back I Actually, it went the opposite way. I often say I didn't get a second chance at life. I got like a fifth (laughs) because... You're a cat. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. You would think that happens and you just make the most of life. But actually what it made me do was become very scared of life. Yes, very anxious and fearful. and And... everything was an obs- was something that could lead me back to a hospital bed. Because so, everything feels fragile. Yeah, yeah and you yeah. feel fragile. Yeah. 
Um, and it was actually when I was hospitalised when I was 19 that reversed that and made okay. me realise all I've done my entire life because I was second year of university is study and what if I died tomorrow? Then all I would have done is study. And I had these lists of things and I used to be a very active child. I used to go horse riding, ice skating, rollerblading, literally yeah. every sport, I've pretty much done it. <laughs> and I stopped all of them because what if I hit my head and fell? Yeah, um, I and mean, this is PT- classic PTSD. 100%. Yeah. And I yeah. lived with that for literally a decade from 11 to 21. Um, and so I called it my YOLO summer and I did everything that scared me from like cliff jumping. To oh, you're making me feel sick. <laughs> I hated it. I still hate it. Roller yeah. coasters. I did it. I did that thing of like, I'll do it twice. I'll do it once to get yeah. over the fear and once to try to enjoy it. I didn't enjoy any of it, but I did it. Um, and it was smaller things like going to a dance class. Like I never went to a dance class because I like feared looking stupid and being trapped in a dance class. Because yeah. as much as I talk about like, uh, trauma is trapping you. I genuinely had the same feeling from a dance class because I thought it was rude to leave. Yeah, like, yeah. So I was, I never went because I was like, what if I want to leave halfway through? Um, and so, and I was worried about being the fat girl in dance class and looking stupid. So I did all the small things as well. And right. that's where I realised my body was so much more than its beauty. Yeah. Um, and, that, and that respect for yeah. what it can do. Yeah. And that's why fitness and exercise is something I talk about so much because actually living in your body and feeling your body as it moves mm-hmm. was the first time I was like, my body has a greater purpose mm-hmm. than looking beautiful. Yeah. And I might never look beautiful. And frankly, at one point in your life, you're going to lose that title anyway because like... All of us are. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Because like older women are not part of the beauty ideal. Yeah, so yeah. you're going to lose it one way or another. It was this moment of feeling my body and feeling how strong it is and how powerful it is. And and flipping the whole thing of I thought my body was against me and realising I was like, my body's actually trying to do everything and to keep me alive. And you end up feeling grateful because yeah. you start to think, actually, you came out of a coma. You came back from this. Yeah. I, sh- I should maybe kind of like chip in here and help a bit too. Yeah. You know, you do start to feel like that and valuing it more. And like you should probably not be so mean to something that's yeah. literally keeping you alive all day, every day. Now, it was all this life experience that you talk about that I guess led you to write your book. Yeah. Um, it's called I Am, Am I Ugly? Yeah. Um, and have seen so many people talking about it, people that I follow, you know, um, I've seen it in the press. Um, it's been quite a Bible for a lot of people, I'd say. Well, I I kept it as a memoir because I didn't want to I didn't want to go down the advice route because I think advice, especially around body positivity, is so shallow. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas I was like, I just want to show you how many um, slips and like mistakes went like happened along the way in terms of like I would finally feel confident. So at 15, I finally felt confident around my weight. And then I was like, at 18, I was like, oh, wait, I have to deal with scars. I haven't Mm -hmm. dealt with scars yet. Oh, wait, now I have to talk to my boyfriend for the first time about my scars and how I had that conversation. I like slipped it out right, but like as we were walking home because I didn't know how to say it. Oh, my God, was it like silent? (laughs) And you were like, so, do you know, I've got these like, how did it go? It's even worse. So he, I, so we're walking home like it's the third date um, and I didn't know how to bring it up so all this whole walk home it's a 20 minute walk I'm in my brain being like how do I bring this up how do I bring this up and then he goes oh my I trip and he catches me and he was I was like oh I'm so clumsy um I'm dyspraxic and he was like oh my brother's dyspraxic too and I was like oh that's so strange I'm also dyslexic I've also had 15 surgeries a brain tumor function test by destructive analysis my brain and conditional hydrocephalus <laughs> literally at that speed classic he turns to me and goes cool <laughs> we keep walking 
And then all I could think was, wait, I mentioned the surgeries. I'm not sure I mentioned the scars because it sounds so silly. But when you mention surgeries, no one not actually considers. Yeah. yeah. And no one like relates it to scars. So then once we were in my bedroom, I literally went to him and I went, by the way, you know those surgeries? They come with scars. <laughs> oh my God. But the funny thing is... Thanks I, for the follow-up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I wrote about it in my book and I was like, as much as it's uh, like embarrassing and also I didn't really want my parents to read about these experiences, we have to show how clumsy it is when you mm-hmm. first start talking about it. And it's not going to be the perfect conversation. And it was the conversations that followed that with my friends where they were like, you do realise you don't have to do- give a disclaimer about your body before you show your body. But this is what I wanted to say to you because I've got uh, quite a lot of scars on my body. So I've got like my regular burns and skin grafts, but things like my groin, um, they took away all the skin on my groin to build my lids. Yeah. So I've got quite a lot of surgical scars there. I've got scars on my back and my bum where my skin was removed and put on my face. And I, when I first began to be intimate again I did say to, I like preempted it yeah. and was like just to let you know like you've got all these scars like here and here and I was thinking if you had cellulite or varicose veins yeah. you would not flag that on date five and be like just to let you know there's thread veins on my ankles yeah. would you like but it's almost like that saying of like say it before the bully does so it yeah. was kind of in my head I was like I need to warn them so that they can leave before I'm naked and then they walk out halfway through yeah but I actually just realized it's all about insecurity and now my surgeries tend to come up before my scars come up just in terms of the fact that my job naturally brings up that conversation yeah yeah. Um, and I don't give it as a disclaimer because I just don't think you're getting into a relationship with a body and Mm. I don't see it that way but it's all of that kind of flops away once you actually get okay with having the conversation around the surgeries I think that was the hardest part was I always thought it was about the scars but I was actually like to say Uh, like to tell the memories that happened in hospital Mm -hmm. is actually the hardest part. The hardest part to relive that, yeah. Yeah. See, I always used to like preempty it thinking I was like stopping rejection. Yeah. And then I was like, no, I'm just starting off on an apologetic foot of apologising for being myself. And like, what's the point in that? I don't know. Exactly. And that's the part where I was like, you know what, I'm just going to try a few times not mentioning it. And most don't, I don't want to say don't notice, but like they don't, mention it you talk about kind of just living your life anyway and and one of the things I really admired about you recently um is you were talking about the well I was going to say under representation but no representation of plus size women in the Asian community yeah and one thing I noticed about you on your page is if you want something or you want something to happen you don't wait (laughs) for it to come to you you don't wish and say oh this isn't happening you actually go and do it and that's what you did in a recent photo shoot (laughs) well so what tends to happen is I get worked up about something and then I like rant about it for a week and then I get to a point where I'm like talking to my agent or something and I'm like I need to do something about it and he was like go do it (laughs) but that's the activist in you Yeah, yeah and so I think it was the fact that it was actually three months of me talking to fashion brands and I've worked with a lot of fashion brands over the last five years and it was just the best way I could describe it was a lot of slammed doors in my face and like even when why I was, is this I think because there's not enough noise around it I mm-hmm. think when we've talked about other races there's been enough noise around it they can't avoid it without getting backlash for not doing it mm-hmm. they've been able to do this the lack of Asian representation in all industries without any backlash like the fact that the Crazy Rich Asians was the first movie in 25 years <laughs> with an all Asian cast like why that was able to go that long is because there was no backlash in the last 25 years mm-hmm. that there, this hasn't existed. Um, and I just realised we haven't even said where you're from for people oh, listening. I yeah, just I'm think this is a random like topic. Half British and I'm half Chinese. Yeah. And I grew up in Hong Kong. So 
it it was that and it was also the reason why I focused on the plus size thing was because I grew up in Hong Kong where I literally had my mum had to make my clothes and I'm a size 20 but back then I was a size 16 mm-hmm. so I should have been able to find clothes mm. at my size I should still be able to find clothes but still like I wasn't even plus size mm-hmm. throughout my childhood and I still couldn't find clothes so the fact that there's a stereotype that all Asian women are petite and small mm-hmm. and there really is that's yeah. not just you saying that like and also the fact that, like, even when I released the campaign, they were like, no, but they are. That is, like, it's not just a stereotype. They are. You're, you guys are just the exception. I'm like, no. <laughs> so that was the feedback? Well, that, that some... was that was a few comments. Right, and, okay. like, I mean, it went so global that yeah. it was inevitably going to get some negative comments. But the whole thing that I wanted to do was make people notice it. And mm. I was like, we're not even at the point of changing it is what I realised around the fashion brands was I was like, I want you to start noticing it. Um, and so I just started being a bit of a nuisance to all these fashion brands. But then it got to a point where I was like, they're not doing anything so I can keep talking about it. But I don't like bang my head against the wall. So. Well, I hope that you never stop. Um, yeah. I think you're helping so many people you've never met, you know, so many younger youths, people in hospital, anyone with, well, I was going to say anyone with a journey, but we're, we're all on that cliche kind of journey, aren't we? And yeah. I really hope that there's more books in you and that you publish uh, more books because I will definitely yeah. be buying them. <laughs> um, and thank you for coming on the podcast because I feel that you're very unique. Uh, we haven't had a guest like you. Um, (laughs) Yeah, and just from a selfish point of view, I got to sit down with you and talk to you. So, yeah, thank you. And I I guess it isn't always easy to share every aspect of your life. So a gratitude to you for sharing it. Thanks for having me on. And thanks for being (laughs) the pioneer in all of this. No, not at all. It's all of us together as a movement. (laughs) So, yeah, thank you. Thanks for listening to Katie Piper's Extraordinary People. If you haven't already, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed this, please help us spread the word. Rate and review the show where you got this or share on socials.